You know, over the, the past several weeks, actually the past month, I've really just been praying a lot. All right, Lord, what do you, what do you want me to do? And what do you want me to preach? What do you want me to teach? And um, there were several events that kind of came together that created this message. And I feel like, I feel like I'm going to be on a journey with you today because there's a lot of things in here that I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to spend more time actually looking at this in my own life. And, and so we're going to be going through some things together because, um, you know, in my heart right now, I've got... Um, the Gulfport discipleship trip that I'm going to be leading in November. So I've got discipleship on my mind and, you know, helping to train another church on how to actually start discipling one-on-one in their church. And I'm so excited for that trip. If you've ever been on a trip like that, it is just so much fun to be able to see the light bulbs turn on for them and for them to understand the discipleship. And we live and breathe and bleed discipleship here. But the fear that, can, that I have and, and the thing that I need to keep in check in my heart is because we're all about discipleship, it can be the one thing that is the most easy to take for granted. And we can really lose sight and we can be active in discipleship, but then we can start to lose our perspective and our focus and our heart can tend to wander away from it. And so there are things in Scripture, if we're, if we're paying attention, that God will do to keep nudging your heart back to where it should be, because we do have this tendency to wander. I really appreciate that even in Jen's song, talking about even though my, my heart tends to wander. And it's so true, because we are sinners. It's so unworthy, and still for us, he chose to die. And uh, it's just amazing to me. And so I, I'm, I'm excited about this message, and I, I can't wait to get into the details, and I can't wait to see what God is going to teach all of us today. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I'm going to kick off with the the intro, and I want to take a look at Luke 14 in this sermon titled, The Cost of Discipleship. And once we get ourselves settled, once you turn there, I want to pray one more time and just ask the Lord to teach us. Father, I, I pray this morning that you, would, um, that you would teach us and that you would guide us and that you would lead us, uh, that you would be uh, the one that we hear the most today. Uh, there can always be many distractions that can invade our hearts and minds at any point in time, but I pray that you would really help us to clear a place for you today and to have your way in us uh, and to spend this next little time together uh, really hearing from you and and having the desire to be diligent, uh, faithful disciples. And so God, whatever it is that you need to teach us specifically, individually, I pray that uh, we would pay attention because your spirit is always moving and he's always wanting to guide us and to restore things and to uh, edify us and, and even correct us and even rebuke us at times. And so I pray, God, that we would just pay attention today and that we would hear you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a cost is required to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus preached, taught, modeled, and gave specific examples of what this means throughout his earthly ministry. And therefore, we faithfully preach, teach, and train about this cost in one-on-one discipleship and throughout every ministry area, as we should. At the same time, there exists a self-centered hypocrisy across our Laodicean church age that actively promotes the perception that we can please the Lord 
as disciples of Jesus Christ and feel safe, secure, and settled in this present evil world. And this has led many Christians to convince themselves that they are faithful disciples while remaining among the multitudes rather than becoming true disciples by leaving the multitudes, going to Jesus, and truly following him. And I want to pause there, and let's take a look at Luke 14. I will never forget when Pastor Tony Godfrey went through this passage at summer camp several years ago, and it always comes back into my mind every now and again, and it's very helpful to me. Jesus, in verse 25, it says, And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. These multitudes were looking for something. And there's places in the scripture, especially when you get into John chapter 6, where you see that they were looking for their bellies to be filled. And a lot of times these multitudes were looking for what Jesus could do for them rather than surrendering their lives to the Lord and saying, God, what, what do you want me to do for you? This life is yours, and so teach me, guide me, and, and, and tell me what to do. They were looking for something for themselves, and that is religion. That's what religion does. They look at God, and they're like, okay, God, what can you do for me? And that is evil, and that is wrong. And a lot of people have, have stopped going to church and stopped being faithful because they have that perspective. And that's their fault. It really is, because they're coming to God saying, all right, God, what can you do for me? And that's not right. And so you have circumstances like this in verse 25 where he has this multitude and then he turns and said unto them, because they're following him. That's the context. That's the kind of the idea. And then he says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, he's not saying to hate your family. That's ridiculous. He's drawing a contrast here. And he's saying, look, if, if I'm not the priority, if God is not the priority, then you can't be my disciple. If, if someone else is in your life where it's your family or your friend and you're worried about what they think or what they feel about you, then you can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ because as a disciple, the only person's opinion that matters is his. That's it. And it's hard for us because we're just weird people. This is how we are. We, we compare ourselves among each other, and we base our faithfulness on each other. And that's not how it's supposed to work out. Because each of us are unique and different, and we're not made the same. And I'm so thankful for that. Because that's what makes a body, and that's how we work together to honor and glorify the Lord in a better way than we could have separately. And so he says very clearly, listen, I've got to be the priority, and if I'm not... If I'm not, even above your own life, your life cannot be the priority. You wanting to do whatever you want cannot be the priority. He cannot be my disciple. And then 27, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There is a risk involved here. Now, at this point, he has not borne his own cross, and he has not died on the cross. But when, they, when he mentioned cross, they knew what that meant. That there is a chance that you might have to give up your life. And if you love your life too much and you are the priority, you can't be a disciple. So you cannot. You, it's not possible. It is impossible for you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ if you don't do this, if you're not willing to do it. And then he goes down through, and he starts about counting the cost. And he gives some great examples. Verse 20, For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation, is not able to finish it, 
all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. So if you're going to build a tower, you better make sure you got enough to finish it. If you're going to go to war, you better make sure that you have enough to win. And if you don't, well, then you better make peace. So likewise, you have to forsake all that you have in order to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is something that is, like when you sit and meditate on that, that's, that's heavy. I mean, that's heavy. But once you've crossed over the line, it's very easy. And the burden is very light. And so if we're going to be disciples, we have to count the costs. And the other thing that I was thinking of with this one, and this is always a good point of reference for me, is this verse in Acts 11.26. So you have Barnabas, and he goes and he finds Saul, and they go to the church in Antioch. And it says, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And here's the phrase. This is so good. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Notice the order. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so wouldn't it be a surprise that in our Laodicean age where everything is backwards, that we live in a culture where if you are a Christian, great. But if you want to be a disciple, well, then you're just a serious Christian. And so, you know, you, you take Jesus very seriously, so you must be a disciple. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the disciples were called Christians. So that means that if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. And then as a result of being a faithful disciple, then you are called a Christian because you look like Christ. That's the whole idea. It's not the other way around. And so it's no wonder we live in this culture that has this completely backwards. And we're going to see that today in our passage today. And Luke 14 echoes this. You need to forsake all that you have. Acts 11 sets the pattern. Disciples are, call, are called Christians first in Antioch. Let's finish the paragraph. The danger we all face is that we are Laodiceans that tend to adopt this compromised, corrupt mindset. We do. Even in our church, we are a good church. We love the Bible, and we're very serious about these things, but we are Laodiceans. These things trickle into our life every week, if not every day. And if we are to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must daily know the cost, count the cost, and then make the decision. And this is a daily decision that we have to make. So now turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We're going to spend most of our time in Luke chapter 6. I have a lot of cross-references on the screen this morning. And I'm going to give you some context here. So Luke is the chronological gospel, and it gives the best layout of the linear events of the life and ministry of Jesus. And so in summary, chapters 1 through 3, it details Jesus' conception, his birth, his early years, 
It talks about John the Baptist's ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. It talks about Jesus' baptism and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Once you start to get into chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry after he is tempted of the devil out in the wilderness. And he travels from city to city, preaching and teaching God's word. He commands devils and unclean spirits to come out of people, and he heals every single person that he comes in contact with. And this is actually the first time where you see devils and unclean spirits being cast out. It's when Jesus shows up. And then in chapter 5, Jesus begins calling certain people to follow him, and many become his disciples. So out of his preaching and teaching, some would follow, but there were certain ones that he said, hey, I want you to follow me. And they began to understand the cost of discipleship. A couple verses in Luke 5. This is when they, this is talking about Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. And even with the sons of Zebedee, their father, Zebedee, was there. And they forsook him and followed Jesus. So they're starting to understand what's going on. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. So those are some of the disciples that he specifically called. And then later on you find Matthew, and this is the, actually Matthew is at verse 28, where he was sitting at the receipt of custom, and he goes to him and says, hey, follow me. And it says, and he left all, he left all, rose up and followed him. So these men had heard the preaching and teaching of Jesus, and they were followers per se. They were disciples, I guess you can say. They loved to hear him teach and preach, but Jesus came and sought them out specifically and said, hey, I want you to follow, follow me. And this concept of discipleship for me is something that is, is really big, because again, it's the same thing we just read in Luke 14. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my, he cannot be my disciple. And there's a, a video. I got two videos that I wanted to show you because I saw them online and I was really fascinated by them. And uh, any of you who are fans of Border Collies, you'll love this one. If, if you're not, maybe you'll become a fan after this. But they are incredible creatures. Incredible creatures. And they were made to herd some sheep. And so I want you to see this video. <clears throat> Good girl, Kate. Good girl. So that is Kate the Border Collie. And she is very faithful. And she was waiting. She was waiting for the master's call. Go. Boom. Does her job. And then if you notice at the very end, when all the sheep are finally in the place where the momentum is there, she's looking right at him. What's the next command? 
And then he says, good job, and then she's so excited. Ears are down, tail's wagging, comes over, and then still, by the side of the four-wheeler, what's the next command? Okay, up. And then, okay, what's the next command? This is beautiful. She was doing what she was made for, and she is well-trained. And I was thinking about this because border collies, probably, you know, you train them, you work through, you spend a lot of time doing this, but then how do you keep training border collies? You know, I wonder if it's very similar to discipleship. I don't know, maybe, kind of. Well, I found this next video, and this was very, very interesting. So the farmer just came here and told me a little bit more about border collies I didn't know. If you watch, the one in the back doesn't pay attention to my stick, watching the movement. Go that way. If you look, not even worried about the stick, just watching the movement. And I guess this is the older one, and that's the young one. When this one ends up passing away, that will be the leader, and the pup will do the same thing that that one's doing. Never watches the stick. Always goes out the lead. See it? Border collie lesson. Good girl. I was like blown away. If you had a hard time hearing the audio, the whole point is what he was saying is that the one in front was the leader. And it had the stick, and it wanted that stick. I mean, you could see she wanted that stick. But the one behind is the one that's being trained, and it would not look at the stick. It was looking at the border collie in front of her. And so she was waiting for that movement. So when you went this way, then it would go this way, and it went that way, but it wasn't looking at the stick. And I'm like, we stink in Laodiceans. Do you know what we do? I want that stick. <laughs> you know? And then you hear something else. You smell this over here. And then, I mean, we, we tend to be all over the place. And this is the same pattern that Paul laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And so who are you following? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And that's what discipleship is all about. Because if we are supposed to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then we are either in the process of following Jesus ourselves and doing whatever he commands, and we're ready at any moment, or secondly, we are following someone else who is following Jesus, and we are watching their movements and their life and their behavior so we know how to behave when that first one is out of the way, and now we have to follow Christ on our own. That's discipleship. But there's a cost to it. And it's very important for us to know about this cost because I think, I know that we all are not as faithful as what we ought to be. I know that. But I think it's a lot of times because we don't truly understand the cost of discipleship. We really don't understand it. And as I was thinking about this and working through this, we preach and teach this all the time. But here in chapter 6, I actually found a passage where Jesus gives specifically what is that cost of discipleship. And I've never made this connection before. And so I know this is something I'm going to keep using in my own heart, in my own life, and even in the future with other opportunities to preach and teach about it, because Jesus himself laid this out. And so in chapter 6, what we have here is that you have the religious, religious leaders, they're contending with Jesus, and they're contrasting their disciples with Jesus' disciples. And there was obviously something very different about Jesus and his disciples that caused great envy among the religious establishment. There's huge problems. And this contention continues into chapter 6. These religious leaders are filled with madness, and they're seeking to rid the world of Jesus. And it's at this time that there is a transition in Jesus' ministry. He goes up into a mountain 
And most likely, that'd be the Mount of Olives. And he prays all night unto God. And he returns and he chooses 12 apostles or leaders out from among his disciples. Take a look at verse 12. After verse 11, it says, And they were filled with madness, and they communed one with another. Luke 6, verse 11, what they might do to Jesus. And it came to pass in those days. That's such a, oh my goodness, that's such a great phrase. In those days, he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he named apostles. And then you have the twelve there listed down through verse 16. So he chooses these leaders out from among the disciples, and then he publicly preaches a message to his disciples that's very important. There's some great fundamental things in this chapter, and there's great truths that they need to remember in order to be faithful. But it begins in verse 20 with the cost of discipleship. It begins in verse 20 with the cost of discipleship. So I'm going to read verse 20 through 26, and then we're going to work our way through this. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So the very first thing that we see here is poverty. And as you work through this, you might recognize, this sounds kind of familiar. Well, it kind of mirrors a little bit of Matthew 5. But Matthew 5 actually has nine blessed statements and no woes in the immediate context. The woes are actually later in the book, and they match up perfectly. There's nine woes later. And those are for the kingdom of heaven. That's not our kingdom. That's the physical, literal kingdom that's coming one day when Jesus Christ sets his feet on Mount Olives and totally destroys all the nations and the kingdoms of the world, and he sets up his throne and his dominion for a thousand years. We are about the building of the kingdom of God. And if you notice in the very first blessed, it says, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So these four and four woes that are the antithesis of it are for us. And it is for the kingdom that we are pursuing and building today. And it begins with poverty. Blessed be ye poor. And so the two verses that we contrast here are verse 20. And he lifted his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And verse 24, But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. So the very first thing that we see before getting into the poverty aspect is that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And this phrase in Scripture is interesting. It's a good study. It's associated with the change of perspective. There's a transition in his ministry. And he appoints his apostles from the midst of his disciples. He's choosing his leaders among leaders. And then he begins his message. Blessed be ye poor. So the contrast we see here is poor versus rich. And rich, as another part of that definition, is consolation. That you have peace, tranquility. That there's things that are at rest in your life. So that's very interesting. This is the first foundational cost of discipleship. And it's poverty. Being poor. And so when you think about poor, really the definition means to be needy, to be insufficient, 
to be destitute, to be worthless, of little use. And it doesn't necessarily mean financially. I mean, it can, but it doesn't necessarily mean that because the Bible says in James that the love of money is the root of all evil. It talks about that. Actually, I think it's in one of the Timothys. My bad. It's not in James. But the love of money is the root of all evil. It's, it's those that have riches are supposed to be warned not to trust in uncertain riches because it's a heart attitude. It's an attitude of humility. And that's really what we're talking about here. It's an attitude of humility. And one of the greatest examples I can think of is when Jesus called children in the midst of them. In Luke 18, this is what happened. Jesus said, as he was talking to his disciples and to people, he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Children believe in simplicity. They just do. And it's this simplicity that's in Christ, and it's this humility that's very powerful. And it gives us the ability to cut right through all the nonsense that pride creates to get to the truth of the matter very, very quickly. And I saw it this week. I was talking with Lucy, and, you know, she's going to school, and there's a couple kids that are on the bus. And uh, there was one kid in particular who's like, yeah, he says that he's a Christian and he goes to church, but he says bad words. And I'm like, oh, and I'm just, you know, talking to her. And it's like, yeah, he sits with this other kid and he, he does not love God. And, you know, he says bad words, too. And, and I'm like, well, you know, Lucy, you know what might be happening there is that you have the one kid that says that he's a Christian, but he's just trying to fit in because he wants to be liked. And so he's trying to act like the kid next to him. And she's like, oh, she never thought about that. And I'm like, I love the lessons from kids. Because in her mind, it's very, very simple. If bad words come out of your mouth, you don't love God. And I'm like... I mean, how can I argue with that? I mean, that is like simple, like to the point. If you, if you love God, why would you speak like that? Like that's just in her mind. And I'm like, oh, oh, like what a conviction it is with kids. And then it's, it, it stinks as a parent because then you have to start to explain the nonsense in order for, for her to understand. And then that can kind of seep in and change the way that she thinks. But I want her to have that same simplicity. So I need to have that simplicity in my life. Bad words should not be coming out of my mouth because... I love the Lord, and I call myself a disciple and a Christian, so why would that? That's, that's behavior that's not becoming of Jesus Christ. My life is supposed to be a reflection of him. And so this is something that was alive and well. We're already in Luke. Turn, hold your spot in chapter 6. Look at chapter 18, Luke 18. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I feist, I, I, feist, I fast twice. That's what happens when you merge two words together. It doesn't work. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. I love this passage. Because this Pharisee, deep down God wanted this Pharisee to be like the publican. And the Pharisee said, I thank God that I'm not like this so-and-so, so-and-so, or even as this publican. When that was what he needed. Like, he couldn't even see it. Like, his pride was so blinding him of what he actually needed that he was like, God, I think that I'm not like that guy. And God's like, are you kidding? You need to be like that guy. But he was so blinded by it. His self-righteousness had this, this cloak of pride that prevented him from being able to see what his actual need is. And this publican, publicans were, whew. I mean, they had access to a lot of money. They conned a lot of people. And a lot of people did not like them at all. And he came to himself and understood that he was a sinner. And he was more rich than that Pharisee. He had more in the eyes of God than that Pharisee had. And notice the publican never said anything about the Pharisee. Not at all. Because it wasn't about that. It was God me. He didn't have time to be looking at anybody else and comparing himself with anybody else. The Pharisee did. I thank you, God, that I'm not like... You see it? And there the publican's like, God, be merciful to me. That's humility. That's what it means to be poor. And that is what is lacking in our church age today. Proverbs 13, 7 says, There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. When we see ourselves as we actually are in truth, according to the mirror of God's word, we have a choice to make. You can either make excuses or justifications. You can buckle down and change in your mind with your own willpower to become better. Or you can acknowledge the truth of our state before God, surrender and yield to his leadership, trust him fully and obey. Our value is found in the eyes of our father, not in the eyes of the world. But what's hard is that we often just excuse this away. And this is our Laodicean tendency. And it deceives us. So we have to come to the end of ourselves in order to find any lasting hope and true reconciliation. We have to. We have to. This is why Revelation 3, talking to Laodiceans, it says, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And then he gives them great counsel. Okay, so what do we do about it? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with the eye salve, that thou mayest see. This gold that he wants us to purchase, when you study gold throughout the scripture, it is always reflective of the worship of God. And the only way that we can worship God is through humility. And when we worship God properly, and that's when we get that white raiment, and that's the righteousness of God. And then we can anoint our eyes with eye salve because we can see the word of God becomes our wisdom. And this is exactly what Moses did. He's another great picture of this. In Hebrews 11, it says that by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses had everything. Like, when you think and you study back, he had everything. He was in Pharaoh's household in Egypt. 
There was nothing that he could not have. Like, at any point in time, he could have just said, ah, I want that. I want her. I want this. I want that. I, I want whatever it is. And it was like, okay, it's yours. Because he was in Pharaoh's household. And he came to a point in his life where he's like, man, I see my people and God and them. I belong there. And so then he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And this is the same for us. Laodicea is so tempting. And it's what fears me about my kids. It fears me about teenagers. It fears me about singles because the appeal is all there. That if you just go do this, or if you just go get that, if you get this degree, if you get this job, if you make this much money, if you do this, then you're going to have a good life. Really? For those of you that have traveled that path, I think you can personally testify, mm, not so much. And so trying to get people that are at that age where they need to count the cost of, why are you alive? What were you made for? Were you made for your own pleasure and honor or for God's? And I'm telling you, God is so good. He's so good. I was talking about some of this with uh, Trevor Baker yesterday. Because he and I have a really good connection. And there's some things that we have in common in our lives. And uh, I remember I was working out with uh, Jake Allen. He's over at Greentown. He's actually preaching this morning. And, uh, and he asked me a, a really good question. He was prepping for the singles. He's the ministry leader over there for the singles. And he said, uh, he said, when it comes to your relationship with God, like, what is the one thing that you appreciate most about God? And of course, you know, we're lifting weights and stuff, and I'm not expecting to cry. I'm here to, you know, pump some iron, not cry. And, and, and it's, when he asked me that question, I started to think, and I started to answer honestly, and I'm like, the thing that I appreciate the most about God is that no matter how far I fell, and no matter how many times I blasphemed him or was just unwise and did things that were just dumb, that he still loves me. And I don't deserve it. And it makes my heart soft. And it makes me want to draw near to him. And it makes me not want to go back to those things in my life that pulled me away from him, that pull on my heart every day. I love the Lord. I'm so thankful for him. It's about being poor. It's about choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And God will let us go sometimes and allow us to get into just junk in our life in order for us to understand his goodness and his grace and what we were actually made for. And so it makes me very passionate because I feel like if I can somehow get what's inside of me out, and I was so passionate about youth ministry, and I still am, that they can make different decisions than what I made, and they can do things better, and they don't have to learn by making mistakes in order to enjoy the richness of a relationship with God.
So it's about being poor. That's the foundation because it builds from there. We live for things that are not of this world. And it's about having humility. It's about choosing to abandon everything in this world in order to be on God's side. And so we have to know the cost, and we have to count the cost, and we have to make the decision. Blessed be ye poor. And if you don't choose every day to be poor, then you're not going to be able to be used of God at all. It's just not going to work. You've got to look in the mirror of God's word and see yourself as you actually are, and then you can understand the magnitude of God's love for you, and then it will motivate you to do great things for God. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is and what he deserves. So that's the first one, poor. Second, the second cost of discipleship is hunger. Go back to Luke chapter 6. This one is also very closely tied with the first one in an aspect of humility. Verse 21. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. And it is contrasted with verse 25. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. So this second cause of discipleship is hunger. And the contrast is being hungry versus being full. And again, it's not necessarily talking about food. And that can't apply to you because of the whole concept of prosperity. Because when we are prospering and we are full and we are comfortable, it can hinder our perceived need for the Lord. It's hard and you can't really see because you're blinded by that prosperity. And so we can begin to focus on what we don't have than rather what we do have. And man, is that a battle sometimes with our kids been trying really hard with my son on that one. And we can forget from whose hand these blessings have come from. The gratitude and thankfulness become much more difficult because we are spoiled. And here's the key with hunger. It's about dependency on the Lord. And the dependency on the Lord should never cease. It's something that should be a daily reminder and it needs to be cultivated every single day, no matter what's going on in your life. In Deuteronomy 8, this is the second time the word hunger shows up in the Bible. And I thought this was such a great verse to reflect this concept. He humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. This is really neat. I mean, this could be a message within itself. Because this directly connects manna with the word of God. And he put Israel in the wilderness to humble them, and specifically by suffering for hunger. And when he put them in that position of being hungry, what did God provide? Manna. Now, when you study out manna, it is so incredible. It is such a beautiful picture that this was bread from heaven, but it didn't come down as like loaves of bread. It wasn't like, you know, you had a loaf of bread and it was like, well, what's the brand name? Manna. Like it's not, it didn't happen that way. And you just have these loaves popping down everywhere. No, it came down as a little seed and it, it was a result of dew that was upon the ground. And there's a certain window of time that they had to go out and collect. And they were supposed to collect enough for themselves, 
But after they collected it, they're supposed to take it and then they beat it into a mortar. They started to actually work it out and then end up making bread out of it. So they had to crush it. They had to turn it into like flour and then they used it to make all sorts of stuff. And it said that the taste of it was like honey. It was like wafers with honey. And honey is another picture of the word of God, of the words of God. It's the Bible. And so they were supposed to take as much as they could gather for that particular day, no more, no less. And then after they were done with it and they consumed it all, then it was done and they would get some for the next day. If they collected more than what they needed, it would breed worms and it would stink. It would just rot. And God gave them twice as much on the day before the Sabbath so that way they would have enough food for the next day because there would be no manna on the ground. And of course, what did Israel do? They collected more than what they needed. Ah, it's worms. Well, yeah, that's what God said. <laughs> and that ended up unfolding. But it's such a great picture of the word of God. It's not, in, in your Christian life, it is not about being the good Christian, checking that I was in my Bible today, I wrote things out. No, absolutely not. It is that you cannot live today without hearing from God. That's what it comes down to. Do you need God so much that you cannot function without getting into God's word today to get what you need today for today's issues? That's what we're talking about here. It's a dependency upon the Lord. When I struggle with getting in my Bible, I think in my mind, I don't need God. If I am being 100% transparent, that is exactly what happens in my heart and in my mind. I think that I can make it or I can push God off to another time in my day. That's what happens. And that's wrong. Because my dependency on the Lord should never cease because I'm poor. I am needy. I'm destitute. I need him. And so then I hunger for him. When we become eternally minded, our appetite changes. Our meat becomes to do the will of him that sent us rather than the satisfying of our flesh. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Hold your spot in Luke 6, John chapter 4. This is a passage I can't wait to get into for our discipleship conference in Gulfport. I taught on this several years ago, and it's changed my perspective ever since. In John chapter 4, you have the woman at the well. And with the woman at the well, the disciples are like, okay, we're hungry, we need to go get some food. And so they leave and they go into the town. And they're going to find food for themselves, for the master, and for all that. And so as a result, they are doing their thing. And this woman comes out, and she has her water pot, and she's going to go get some water. And she meets Jesus at the well, and they have an incredible conversation. And it ends up with him telling her that, I am the living water. And so she finds out that he is the Messiah. And she knew about the Messiah. And she said in verse 25, it says, The woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, when he is come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this, verse 27, came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Why are you talking to this woman? Yet no man said, what seekest thou or why talkest thou with her? Because they were afraid of what Jesus was going to say. But then it says, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and, and saith to the men, come See a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now, just so you kind of understand what's going on before we keep moving through this passage. This woman had a physical need. I need water. She has her water pot. She goes out and she's going to meet her physical need. 
And in the process, she meets Jesus, has a great conversation. And at the end of the conversation, she leaves the water pot and goes back into the city. So she leaves her perceived fleshly need, goes back into the city and says, come and see this man. He told me everything I've ever done. This has got to be the Christ. Meanwhile, the disciples are going into the town like, ah, we're hungry. We need some food. So then we go in and we get food in the same town where this woman is. Goes, gets food, brings food out. What? What's, the, what's the deal? Like, why is he even talking to this woman? And then they see her leave the water pot and go back into the town. And then Jesus begins speaking. Verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. And he said to them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. I'm not concerned about filling my flesh. I have something to take care of that is way more important. Therefore, said the disciples one to another, have any man brought him aught to eat? Verse 34. The disciples are such a reflection of us, aren't they? Verse 34. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye that there are yet four months and then come at the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit into life eternal, that both he and that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And here it is. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And this is the kicker. This is where you start to see it all come together. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves. And know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So here you have, did somebody bring him something to eat? I don't understand. No, no, no. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And then he gives this phrase in verse 35. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The disciples, when that happened, you know what they did? Lift up your eyes and look. I mean, what would, if Jesus said that, what would they have done? They would have seen the Samaritans coming out of the city when he said, lift up your eyes and look. My meat was to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's it. Lift up your eyes and look. And those disciples were just in that city. They went to go to find meat and to find food, and they were just around all these people. Why wasn't there a disciple that while they were there buying meat that thought, Look at all these people. We have the Son of God outside the city. We should go and tell everybody to come and to meet him, because that's what they need. Not one, not one of the 12, the leaders among the disciples. They didn't see it. They didn't get it. This woman leaves her water pot, and she goes in, knowing her reputation, by the way, when you study it out, come and you need to meet this man. I mean, you talk, about, you talk about hunger into doing the will of God. Like, that is absolutely incredible. 
That is incredible. This is why we need to be in the Word of God every single day, because we don't see things right. We don't see straight. We need that eye salve on our eyes, because there is a world out there that is dying, and there are too many times that we might be too concerned about our own agenda, how we're feeling on any given day. We're, we're not even thinking about the souls that are out there. Why? Why? After all the riches that you and I have received through Jesus Christ and who he is, that he is our Savior, why would we not want others to have what we have? It's because our perspective is off. We're not seeing ourselves as poor and hungry. Our perspective needs to change. This world is where our work takes place, but it is not our home. We do not fit here. And we cannot get comfortable. And we shouldn't. And so where are you at with that? I've been thinking a lot about that this week. We should not feel comfortable here. This is where our work takes place. But this is not our home. And the other thing I was thinking about this too with hunger is that there are very special blessings and very sweet moments that we can only have with the Lord when we are truly dependent upon Him. And there's coming a day where we will no longer have that privilege of really depending on the Lord. I've never thought about it from that way before. Because Revelation 7 says very clearly, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them or any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And so this is the second cost, is to be hungry, having the right perspective, having a dependency on the Lord that begins to impact our ministry with other people and seeing things from an eternal perspective. So we have to know the cost and count the cost and make the decision. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Now, third, the third cost is weeping, weeping. I've done that already today. This is a little bit different. Back to Luke 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 21. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. And this contrast with verse 25 Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. The third cost of discipleship is weeping. And the contrast here between verse 21 and 25 is weeping versus laughter. Now, weeping in the Bible is associated with many things. But most of the time, when you study out this word and the variations of the word, it's directly tied to a brokenness of heart about people, circumstances, sin and its consequences. It's connected with repentance towards God. And it's another aspect of practical humility. Some examples of weeping are in the broken heart of Hannah not being able to bear fruit. David, as he weeps to the Lord about the child that died because of his own sin. David, again, and his people, they were weeping as they escaped from Jerusalem after Absalom takes the kingdom. David, when he learns about the death of his son Absalom, Job, 
as he wept over others that were in trouble or those that were made poor. And it's also connected with having a burden for lost souls that need to hear the truth of the word of God. In Psalm 126, verse 6, it says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. It's also associated with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, when Israel refused to hear the word of God and repent and obey because of their pride, and there were massive consequences of their sinful, prideful decision to remain in their own sin. This is what he said in verse 17 of Jeremiah 13. But if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eye shall weep sore and run down with tears, because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. It's also associated with godly men during Ezekiel's day that sighed and cried for all the abominations that were done in the midst of God's people. God said in Ezekiel 9, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city and through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. It's also associated with the personal brokenness of a guy like King Josiah. When they found the word of God and they read it, and realize how far they've wandered away and they've sinned against God as a nation. And God's response to his weeping and his brokenness in 2 Chronicles 34 says, Because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God, when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Weeping out of a biblically broken heart comes from a mind and a heart that is sobered by the truth. And so turn to Luke 7. We're right there in Luke 6. But turn to Luke 7. This is another great example. Luke 7, verse 36 And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner. I love how the Bible just speaks very clearly and plainly. When she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She didn't care that it was the Pharisee's house. She didn't care at all. This is, where's Jesus? I want to be where he is. I need him. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, I love that. He said it in himself. This is just a thought that he had. And Jesus speaks up vocally, answers him immediately. Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, well, master, say on. Of course, he puts on his front. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast judged rightly. And he turned to the woman and said unto him, said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears 
and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he just ignores them. Verse 15, he saith unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. So beautiful. She didn't care about anybody else's opinion. That was her Savior. That was her Lord. And she was willing to make herself look like a fool to honor him. That is a cost of discipleship. Weeping and mourning yields great blessings because it draws you closer to the Lord. And here's the hard part for us. We live in a time of prosperity, pleasure, entertainment, amusement, and laughter. And this passage in Luke 6 says very clearly, Woe unto you that laugh now. At any point in time, with the devices that we even have in our hands, we can access almost anything we want to amuse us. It is a distraction to the reality of life. And here is what happens. The amused rewrite their own reality. And they will not be moved by the truth with compassion, brokenness, and weeping to make a difference for the kingdom of God. If you choose laughter now, you will weep and mourn out of regret when your time in this world is over. And James 4 puts it very clearly because what are we, what are we supposed to do with that? At that point in time, well, James 4 gives a great, great wisdom to follow. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. When we worship the Lord with our lives, it begins with being poor, and having great humility. It begins with hunger and being very dependent upon Him. And it also includes weeping and drawing very, very close to the Lord because it gives you a sober mind and a sober heart. You can see and think clearly. You can do the things that are right. And so all three of those build together, and it's, it's, it's very, very powerful. It's the foundation of discipleship. If you want to be a disciple, those three things have got to be there. And then it leads naturally into the fourth point, and that is rejection. If you choose to be poor, to be hunger, to be hungry, and to weep, then it's going to lead to the fourth cost, and that is rejection. Luke 6 and verse 22. Luke 6 and verse 22. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Compare that and contrast it with Luke 6, 26. Verse 26, Woe unto you, when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. The fourth cost is rejection. It's hate, separation, reproach, speaking evil of you for Jesus' sake. And the contrast, very specifically, is speaking evil of you versus speaking well of you. And he also throws in true prophets versus false prophets. 
And this should be of no surprise because Jesus told this to his disciples. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. And so his life and his ministry sets the tone for what our life will be like. That's the way it's supposed to be. Why would we think that we can do it better than Jesus? We're following his plan but often we go our own way and we have our own strategy, not even realizing that it's already compromised. And many churches do this. They try to do things to reach more people for the Lord. And they try to attempt to yield more fruit that would remain to glorify God. And yet they don't. So here's the reality. We should just do, we would do better just to follow the plan that Jesus laid out for us. And that is to be true disciples, to pay the cost, to preach and teach the word of God to seek the lost to be saved, to invest and train believers to become disciples of Jesus Christ. And then we send them out to go and do the exact same thing. So many churches are consumed with popularity and status and getting people in the door. But why are they actually wanting to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Because I have found in a lot of cases, the world doesn't hate those churches, but the world certainly hates us on a different level. It really does. And Jesus said in John 7, the world cannot hate you. But me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. That's the rub. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are not here to make the world feel more comfortable. We are here in contrast to the world because the world is evil. That's why we don't fit. In John 17, Jesus said this about his disciples, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This world hates Jesus. And it hates us as his disciples. We stand in opposition to it. And, and this is the hard part as Laodiceans. Because the truth is, if we are actually disciples, we do not seek the love and affirmation and acceptance of the world. We don't. If we're honest, we want it. but we don't seek it. If we're actually disciples, we don't seek those things. What do we seek? We seek the souls in the world out of a love and an affirmation and accepted relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. There's a big difference. The cost of this hatred from the world is because we do not belong and we shouldn't want to belong in this wretched place. We should not. And if there's something inside of you today that wants to belong, I'm telling you today from the Word of God that it's not right. It's not right for us to want to belong here. That's hard. Because we live here. The only reason that we are here is to reach others. This is not our home. If you're a true disciple, you know this, and deep down you cannot wait until you're home. However, you're here and you should have a desire inside that you can't wait to do the work of God here as your Savior did. False prophets and Laodicean Christians follow the ways of this world and they forsake the ways of God and they do it to their own destruction. 
the tension that we face is reacting to this kind of hatred. The world and the people of the world, including Christians that are worldly, they get in the way of others hearing the truth of the Word of God because of their hatred. That's really what happens. A great verse on this one is 1 Thessalonians 2. It says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, and ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin alway, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. This world and worldly Christians, they try to stop us from pleasing God. And in the process, they are actually in a position where they are contrary to all men. When you really understand the gospel, when you really understand the gospel with, with all of your heart and soul, you understand that it is for all men. When Jesus Christ died, he died for all men. He loves every single person, and the gospel is for every single person. And so if there is anything that stops the gospel from getting to all men, that is contrary to God. It is completely and totally contrary to God. And it says very clearly that they are forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. I feel like this is the only time that we can really struggle with wrestling with flesh and blood. Because we, as the Bible says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but there are people that are going to try to stop you from being able to share the gospel, share the word of God with other people. And we have to remember that flesh and blood is the object of our Savior's love, whom he died for. And so it must become the object of our love and our ministry. And just as Jesus had to contend with those that hindered his ability to accomplish the work of the Lord, so there will be times when we must do the same as the Lord did. And when this happens, hate will come our way. And this is the same thing that happened of the prophets, the true prophets, and the faithful of Jesus Christ. Another great example of this was, was Stephen. And I tell you, whenever I write my name or I think of my name, I think of this man, and it helps me. I'm thankful that my parents named me after, after him. But he was ministering the word of God into the people and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, religious leaders were coming against him. And he's preaching to them. And he's, I know he's having compassion for them. But at the end, it doesn't feel like compassion because this is how he ends his sermon. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. <laughs> I, I, I like him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, and this is a personal side for me. I know that I can have a softer personality. And I can be more connected on, on an emotional level. And there are things about me that I can be more laid back. But I will say, God has been so good to me, and I understand his love and his patience and his forgiveness in such a manner, that when the line comes that I have to cross over and say stuff like this to please him, why would I not step over that line? I will cross over that line. 
Because there comes a point where it's not right. You can't sugarcoat certain things. And Stephen came to a point where he's like, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. This is what they needed to hear. You are resisting the Holy Ghost. You always do. Your fathers did. Your fathers killed these prophets that God graciously and mercifully was sending to you time and time again, and you did not want to hear it from them. And you're doing it again, and you killed him. I mean, this is what they needed to hear, because when you find out after this message, what happens is they were cut to the heart. In that moment, God was using the words of God and the words of Stephen in conjunction to come in and rip them to shreds on the inside, because that's the only way that they could actually start to understand that I am wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And this is the downfall of the church today in our world is because churches are afraid to speak the truth with love and compassion out of a grace and mercy from God because we need our hearts ripped to shreds in order for us to understand how good God is and to yield our lives in willing service to him. That's what we need. And it happens all over the scriptures. I mean, I think of John 9, where you have the man born blind, and his own parents rejected him. I mean, you have a scenario where he was like, I was born blind, now I see. And then his parents were like, oh, we don't, we don't know what happened, because they feared the Jews. They, were, they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue, but we, we have no idea. So his own parents rejected their own son. The son comes in, stands alone, and says, hey, listen, I don't know, but this I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And then he comes to a point, he's like, well, do you want to be his disciples? And they're like, oh, and they're all offended by it. It's incredible exchange that we are going to come to a place in our life where difficulties unfold, where we're going to be rejected and we're going to be separated. And it might even be with people that love us and care for us deeply that we thought we had unconditional connections and acceptance with. But because we're willing to follow the Lord, they don't want anything to do with us anymore. And they start treating us poorly. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 65, Verse 5, it says, these people that want to separate you from their company, this is what they do. They say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. And this is what God says, these are a smoke in my nose and a fire that burneth all the day. They're annoying to me. Have you ever gotten smoke in your nose? It's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. I don't, if you're a person that is at a bonfire and you have a chair set up and you love that smoke coming at you, you're weird. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. There's just something not right with you. You need to get right with the Lord. You really, really do. In the next chapter of Isaiah, in the same verse, different chapter, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Do you tremble at God's word? Do you? Are you someone that trembles at God's word today, that you want to please the Lord? And this is what he says. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, the Lord be glorified. They're trying to say, oh, the Lord be glorified. They're trying to separate it because we're honoring the Lord. But he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. When our heart is for people, we don't want them to be ashamed. This is the hard part as a Bible believer because people that we love may separate us and we don't want to be separated from them. And especially when you know what's happening at the end of time. Because if they continue down that path, you know what's inevitably going to happen with them. 
And they're going to be ashamed, but you don't want them to be ashamed. You want them to know and have what we have in Jesus Christ. And this is the true heart of a disciple maker. This is a true minister of Jesus Christ. Jesus felt the exact same way. In Luke 13, 34, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets. You know what? This is how he would have said it. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which kills the prophets. And stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And he would not. A disciple that is poor, that is hungry, that is weeping, will be rejected. But that's the heart that they have. They have the heart of their Savior towards others. So how do we faithfully manage this in our own heart? Because sometimes we can come to a place where it's like, well, fine, I'm not going to care for you. Okay. Mm -mm. You know what we need to do? 2 Corinthians 12, 15. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. When you love someone and you love them abundantly, you always run the risk of being loved less in return because they don't like what you have to say. It's not about flattery. It's about their benefit. And when you seek their benefit, you will say things that are difficult to hear because they need to hear it. And here's another good path to follow. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate, that's where our Savior suffered, without the gate, separated. So what do we do? Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. We will be rejected. We will. We don't fit. We must know the cost, count the cost, and make the decision. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And so in closing, I just want you to think about a couple things. A cost is required. A cost is required to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Forsaking all and being his disciple means that we will receive poverty, hunger, weeping, and rejection. We cannot be a disciple and be rich, full, laugh, and be spoken of well by this world. So are we choosing to remain safe, secure, and settled in this present evil world among the multitudes, calling ourselves the disciples of Jesus Christ, or will we choose to leave the multitudes, follow Jesus Christ, and truly be his disciples? From the world's perspective, our life as a disciple of Jesus Christ may seem horrible, but they cannot see what's truly happening on the inside. This is what we were made for. We were made to glorify God. We were made for his pleasure and not our own. And so the question is, what kind of life do you want? We need to choose to live a life well spent in light of eternity and not this temporal world. And so my final question, and I've got it up here on the screen, is that what do you need to do with what you heard today? Every time the Bible is opened, every time it's preached, every time it's taught, every time it's read, even by you in the quietness of your own home, or if you're at a coffee shop, or if you're at work, or if you're in your car, wherever you are, 
this is always a great question to ask yourself. What will you do with what you heard today? Our Lord is so worth it. The life that you can have in Jesus Christ can be so incredible. And I know in my own heart, in my own life, when I choose to do things my way, it never works out well. But when I choose to yield my life to Him, it is incredible. Now, is it hard? Yeah. Difficult? Uh-huh. Uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. There are times where you have to take a stand when you don't want to take a stand, and you have to say things that you don't want to say. But even in those moments, you don't understand that the Lord is with you in that moment, that he wants you to obey and to honor and glorify him. Every single time that I have chosen out of my own free will to honor the Lord, it has never gone bad. It has never, even if the circumstances are bad, even if things unfold in a way that are, that are uncomfortable, I have peace with God in my heart about whatever it is. That is priceless. When you're obedient to the Lord, you can have something on the inside that this world is dying for, but they're not willing to pay the cost of. They don't want it. And as disciples, we need to honor the Lord. He, he bled and he gave everything for you and I. So for us to do the same in return is really reasonable service. And so let's count the cost and let's pay that cost and let's honor the Lord with our life. Time is short. It's running out. And we don't know how much time we have left. But with the time we have left, let's honor him and let's do what's right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is so timely. And there are many things that I know that you spoke today among everybody here and even in my own heart. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful, that we would count the cost. This was the beginning of your message to your disciples when they were going to go out and begin ministering in the world. And, and it really needs to be the place to reset our own hearts and minds. So whatever it is, God, that you laid on our heart, I pray that we would be obedient that we would not let the day end without rectifying those things with you and coming into some sort of reconciliation with, with you or with others or whatever the circumstance might be. Father, you are good, and I am so thankful. I'm so thankful that you didn't give up on me, and you were so patient, and you're continually patient with me. I pray, God, that you would open up doors for us to honor you as we minister to others in this world that you may be glorified and more disciples would be made and that we would have fruit that would remain. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.